All right, we'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 5. We're going to be talking about Psalm 5 today. And what we're going to be thinking about from Psalm 5 is how do we respond when people hurt us? What do we do when people hurt us? See, one of the, one of the big tragedies that so many people experience is that uh, church is not a place where they go to experience relief from their hurt, but church is a place where they go and experience hurt. And that's a tragedy because the Bible, more than anything else I've ever come across, is meant to bring comfort to those who hurt. It's meant to bring relief to those who are in pain. And so people go to church and they expect that, and then through uh, different situations, they actually experience hurt from those that they meet at church. I don't know you, I don't know what your pain is, I don't know if you have church hurt or, or some other kind of hurt, but my prayer is that this morning as we read Psalm 5, all of us would be able to experience relief from the pain that we feel. So look, in, look at Psalm 5 with me now. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. So many of us have pain. So many of us have been hurt. And I do not know the cause of all that pain. I do not know how complicated all of it is, but Lord, you know. And so we pray today that you would help us to process our pain before you and that you would bring healing to everyone here. Lord, show us who Jesus is 
and show us how Jesus meets us even in our suffering. We pray that you would give us hope, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said Psalm 5 is is going to guide us through how do we respond to pain. And there are four things that Psalm 5 teaches us to do when we're hurt by other people. The first thing it teaches us to do is to cry to the Lord. If you look at verse 1, it says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. That word groaning, uh, your Bible might say, Consider my meditation or my musing or my muttering. And the idea is that David has woken up this day and his pain is so great, so overwhelming, that it's all-consuming. It's all he can think about, right? And so he wakes up and, and, and it's just on his mind. He can't get it off his mind. And so he just goes to the Lord and he groans over it. He meditates on it. He muses on his pain, talking about it in broken sentences and in half-formed words to the Lord. Lord, why is this happening to me? Why are these people hurting me? What have I done to deserve this? And why are you silent? How long, O Lord? Groaning over his pain. And then in verse 2, David says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. I think it's somewhat scandalous that David is unashamed to cry to God. If you think about God, he's, he's the most high. He's the Lord omnipotent. He reigns over all things. He's seated in the heavenly places. He's glorious and holy. And David is willing to to go into this God's presence and cry to him. Crying is such an intimate, tender thing. It requires so much trust. But David is, is willing to trust God even with his pain. And so today, before we even get into the meat of Psalm 5, I just want to stop here and ask the question, are you at a place in your faith where you are willing to just cry to God. See, we have this temptation to imagine that maturity means growing tougher. We think, if I was stronger, then this wouldn't affect me so much. And so we struggle to turn our hearts to stone so that we aren't touched by the difficult things of life. We grow silent before God because we don't know how to talk to him without bringing up our pain. We stop being ourselves around other people because if we know that if we be ourselves, other people are going to have to care for us. And we can't let that happen. So we grow tougher and tougher and farther and farther from Jesus. But friends, Jesus didn't come to make us emotionless robots. He came to make us passionate lovers, lovers of God and lovers of our neighbor. He didn't, Jesus never said 
Blessed are those who never complain. But he did say, blessed are those who mourn. And so here at the doorstep of Psalm 5, take note of these first two verses. When you experience pain in this, in this life, don't harden your heart. There's someone you can talk to. There's someone you can be vulnerable with. There's someone who will give ear to your words and understand your pain and who will pay attention to you. And so in your pain, cry to the Lord. That's the first thing we are taught to do in Psalm 5. The second thing we're supposed to do when other people hurt us is look at the Lord. Look at verse 3. It says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Your Bible might translate verse 2 or verse 3 as saying, I, I direct my prayer to you and watch. The, the idea is the same. It's, it's that David has woken up. He's got this pain on his mind. And so he's looking toward God. He's, he's expecting something from God. He set his hope on God. And so he looks toward God in God's direction. But why does he do that? Verse 4 tells us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. And he goes on in these next few verses to describe the character of God, who God is. So why does David look toward God? Well, it's because he knows that he needs to look at God to understand who God is, to understand God's character. See, God's personality is David's ultimate reality. And so what we need to do is we need to look at God in our pain as well. So how does David describe God in these verses? What kind of God is he looking at? Well, verse 4 says that God hates sin in the abstract. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. See, in eternity past, God drew a line in the sand and has never once let evil cross over that line into his presence. God hates sin. But verses 5 and 6 take that one step further. And they teach us the difficult truth, the uncomfortable truth, that God hates sinners. Look at verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is a difficult truth to understand. It's difficult for me and it's uncomfortable for me. But I think if we can better grasp what God's anger and hatred are, we'll better be able to grasp what David is saying here. Because see, when we talk about God being angry or having hatred, we don't mean that his face 
turns red and smoke pours out of his ears as he wrecks everything in his path. Right? That's, that's like us when we get angry, but that's not what the Lord is like when he is angry. No, what the Bible means is that God always, always opposes people who are committed to doing evil. He will never make a deal with the devil. God will never compromise. And friends, we want God to be angry. It's necessary for us. We want a God who always stands against sin, always confronts abuse, always fights for justice. We want a God whose very name is the contradiction of evil. You know, I'm a a teacher, and and at my school this past year, we um, hired a, a student resource officer uh, to work at the school, and uh, he's he's just a great guy. Um, the, the first day of school, before the students all got there, you know, the teachers are all in their room getting everything ready, and he goes to every teacher's classroom and just says hello, introduces himself. You know, he's a big old guy, and he always wears his uniform, but he's got this huge smile. He's always laughing, always asking how you're doing, and then all year long, you know, he's walking the halls all the time and he knows all the kids and they know him and he jokes around. I mean, just, he's just a great guy. But he's not there to be nice. And, and if anything were to happen, if anything dangerous were to happen at our school, I don't want him to be nice in that moment. I want him to be controlled I want him to be just. I want him to be righteous. But I want him to be angry. If there's any kind of threat, I want him to have this kind of anger that will lead him to do whatever it takes to protect innocent people. And friends, you agree with me on that. See, if God hated sin less than he does, that would not make him more good. It would make him less good. And David doesn't make the mistake that we often make. And so in his pain, he looks at the God who hates sinners. But that's not all that God is. right? Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. David looks at God and and sees that he hates sinners. But looking at the same God, David also sees that he loves his people with a a steadfast, abundant love, right? And and in in Psalm 5 and in all the Psalms, we shouldn't think that there's like these two groups of people, that there's the righteous, good people who always do everything right, and then there's the evil, bad, wicked people who always do everything wrong, and God hates the wicked people and God loves the good people because they always do what's right. No, David knows that if he's going to go into God's presence, he needs the abundant, steadfast love of God. The the, the two groups of people are one group that lives in rebellion, continued rebellion against God, and so God opposes them, 
and another group of people who are sinners, but who are trusting in the steadfast love of God. But I will, I will be the first to admit that if this passage were the only passage we had in the Bible to understand who God is, we might be left with a pretty terrifying picture. Because deep down, we all know that we are sinners. And if God hates sinners and that's bad news for us. But this isn't the only passage in the Bible. <laughs> you know, the Bible says that God also loves sinners. In fact, he loves them with an abundant, steadfast love. God loves sinners so much that he would send his only son, Jesus, into this world to die for them, to die for their sins, to take away their sins, to take away the curse of their sins, and, and, and to end their rebellion. And so, friends, if you know that you are a sinner today, do not despair under the weight of God's wrath. His love is so abundant that the way is clear for you to go to him. Go to Jesus. Go through the steadfast love of God and you have nothing to be afraid of. So in your pain, look at the Lord. And then the third thing we see in Psalm 5, trust in the Lord. See, I think there are three ways that people often respond when others hurt them. The first way is to fight back. Right? If someone does something wrong to me, I'm going to have to get right. I'm going to have to get even, and so I'm going to have to fight back. If someone does something unjust towards me, I've got to take justice in my own hands and make it right. But there's a couple problems with this way. First, the Bible says it's not what we should do, and that should be enough for us. But the other problem with this way is it doesn't work. Right? I, I, I'm a middle school teacher. I see it all the time. When, when one person does something bad and then the other person tries to get even, even, things just escalate. They just get worse. It doesn't end after you get even. It just keeps on going. And so <clears throat> fighting back is not the right option for us. Th th this is not the way that we need to go. So what's the other way that people respond when they're hurt? The second way, and this I think is a temptation mainly for Christians, the second way is to go limp. To go limp. What I mean is, when sometimes when people are hurt and they're Christian, they know that they have to forgive the person who hurt them. Right? Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And, and you think about Jesus' life and, and, and when he was dying on the cross and, and he prays that God would forgive the people killing him. And we as Christians, we know that we're supposed to turn the other cheek. And so when we, are, when we experience injustice and when other people hurt us, in order to forgive them, what we have to do is we have to minimize the pain, minimize the injustice. 
And so we do this in different ways, some of us. Uh, maybe we explain it away and we try to come up with an excuse for the other person. Maybe we blame ourselves for the other person's sin. But friends, this is not the Christian way either. When other people hurt you, you do not have to explain away the injustice. You do not have to defend them. And you certainly do not have to blame yourself. No, God would have us go down a different way. The third way, and the, 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 the way that David teaches us that we should respond is to trust God. That's what David's doing here in verses 8 through 11. These verses are not, or th- these verses are requests. They're asks. David is, is asking God to do something. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of, your, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David's taking his situation and, and, and his pain, and he knows that God hates those who are oppressing him, and God opposes those who are oppressing him. And David knows that God loves the sufferer. And so David takes his situation to the Lord, and he trusts God with it. He's not taking justice into his own hands. He's not saying, I'm going to fight back and get even with them. But he's not going limp either. He's not explaining away the injustice. He's trusting God to make it right. And Christians are explicitly told to do this in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never fight back. But leave it to the wrath of God. It doesn't say never avenge yourselves and just ignore the pain. It doesn't say remember that you are also a big sinner and so you shouldn't be complaining about it anyway. No. God recognizes that your pain, your hurt, is a burden that is heavy on you, a burden that you cannot carry. And so he says, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Romans 12 continues, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God cares so much about the wrong that has been done to you, that he wants to take care of it himself. And it continues, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is the kind of Christian kindness that we love. This is what we want to be, people feeding our enemy even when they're hungry. And, and, and what, we're, what we learn here is that We can only do that when we have trusted the injustice with God, right? We love best when we trust that God is going to protect us. 
for some reason, we Christians have gotten it into our heads that being Christian means ignoring injustice done to us. No, being a Christian doesn't mean you become a pushover. It means that when people push you over, you fall on a God who is going to lift you right on back up. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't fight. It just means you get better weapons. You trade in the weak Nerf guns of bitterness and revenge for the tanks of divine justice. So when others hurt you, trust God to judge rightly. Yes, pray for their forgiveness. Pray for God's justice. But the, the most important thing is that you are trusting the Lord to do what is right. That's the third thing. And then the fourth thing that we're taught to do in Psalm 5 when other people hurt us is rest in the Lord. But before we talk about this, I just want to stop and think about where we have come from so far in the psalm. So you think about, we began the psalm remembering all the pain and hurt that we have experienced from other people. And with David, we cried about it to the Lord. And then we looked at the Lord and we saw that he opposes people who hurt us and he loves us. And we have trusted the Lord to do what is right. And here at the end, the fourth thing I'm telling you to do is rest. But the problem is, your circumstance is unchanged. Nothing's happened. God hasn't done anything yet to fix the problem. He hasn't taken away the hurt. And so how are you supposed to rest in the midst of this pain? Verse 12 has the answer. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Verse 12 is not a request. David's not asking God to do anything. It's simply a statement, simply reality. God's favor surrounding you, protecting you, holding you is the reason you can rest. But I'm not just saying that, right? I'm not just saying that God's favor covers you and so you just have to to trust that statement. You just have to trust the Bible, just take it in faith and believe it's true. No, God has proven his favor towards you. He has demonstrated his favor towards you. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 61, there's a promise where God promises to send this person into the world. And in Isaiah 61, we read this person's mission statement. There's all these things that this person is going to do as part of their mission statement. And in Isaiah 61, verse 2, the mission statement says that this person will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Right? It's, it's a promise answering what we've been praying in Psalm 5. We've been praying for the Lord to deliver the righteous, to, that, that we through the abundance of his steadfast love might reach his presence. We, we've been trusting in his favor. And, and Isaiah 61 says that this person will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This person will usher in God's favor. They will bring God's favor. But also the day of vengeance. 
the justice that we need. This person will fix the wrongdoing that's happened. And then, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. And he opens up one of the Bible scrolls, and it's the book of Isaiah. And he turns to chapter 61, and he says that this mission statement is his mission statement. And he reads the mission statement, but Luke records him as stopping after the line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke says that he closed the scroll and sat down and began to teach. Now, it would be wrong for us to think that that means Jesus is not going to bring the day of vengeance of our God as well. In Jesus' first coming, it's like he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, you think about his life. He's going to, to the blind and he's giving them sight. He's going to the sick and he's giving them health. He's raising the dead. He's going to people who have been covered with burdens of shame and guilt their whole life and he's giving them freedom and forgiveness. And It's like Jesus was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then in his death, dying in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, that we deserve, taking away our curse and then rising from the dead, living forever and guaranteeing that we will live with him, that we will be raised with him, that we have a, a, an unshakable hope in him. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is like the favor of God with a megaphone. But we are still hurt. We still have pain. And so Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he will bring the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus will come again and will right all the wrongs all of the, the times that people have hurt you and the tears they have caused, he will wipe those tears away and he will fix those wrongs. All of the trust that has been broken, Jesus will come and heal. All of the injustice, Jesus will stamp out. All of the oppression, Jesus will break to dust. Friends, I don't know your pain. I don't know how you've been hurt. But I know that Jesus is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 5. I know that Jesus is the answer to every mourner's prayer. And so, friend, in your pain, cry to the Lord. Tell him all about it. And then look at him. 
Look at how he opposes all the wrong that's ever been done to you and he is for you and trust him. And then, knowing Jesus, rest covered with favor. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you care for us. Father, we are sinners. And we are just such small creatures. And so it is so shocking to see the extent of your steadfast love toward us, that you would want to turn your ear toward us and see us, hear our prayers, hear our complaints, hear our pain, that you would want to help us, Lord. Thank you so much for Jesus, for the favor that we experience, the favor that covers us and surrounds us. And thank you that you take our pain seriously enough to fix it and that Jesus will return and will right all these wrongs. So thank you, Lord. Help us now to look to Jesus and rest in him. Amen.